being here, Sammy. Hello again, Anna. Thank you for having me a second time. You're so welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Sammy actually had this really awesome idea. She texted me that we should do an episode, especially with the current political climate, all about African-Americans in space. And I thought that was such a good idea. And unfortunately, Hannah couldn't be here to do it with us, but Sammy is here. Yeah, I guess the thought occurred to me, I've been getting a lot of ads for African-Americans in music history and art history and all these things. And I was like, well, let's hear about space. <laughs> yes. I think that's a great idea. I also want to caveat, both Sam and I have picked two people to talk about. There are so many more people out there who also have incredible stories. We just picked people who we found interesting or resonated with us. That doesn't mean there are not a lot more people out there with equally as interesting of stories. Yep. There's a ton of people and they're all like superhuman. Yeah. Sammy texted me about that. I was like... <laughs> She's like, I was like, I know these people are so accomplished and amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm just sitting here and I'm happy if I can get a few lines of code to run in a day. <laughs> I can relate to that. Oh, we got to do our intro. We can't forget that. I'm Anna. I'm Sammy. And this is... But, but it, it is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. Perfect. Great attitude there. <laughs> I was trying to match your cadence because we were slightly off last time. It was like pretty close though. All right, let's do this. I said I would go first and I'm going to go out of chronological order. Sammy and I were talking about this beforehand. I very much overthought the order in which I wanted to talk about. I'm doing two women, but I'm doing them out of chronological order and I hope it will make sense kind of at the end. So the first person I'm going to talk about, her name is Jeanette Epps. And just as a quote from her that I thought was interesting was, the NASA mission has always inspired me because I have a great desire to help further our understanding of the world we live in and the universe. Inspiring. I share in her sentiment. That's a good quote. I thought so too. So she was born on November 3rd, 1970 in Syracuse, New York. And actually this is near where I grew up, which is part of the reason why I chose her. She has six brothers and sisters, including a twin sister named Janet. And her parents were named Henry and Liberta, and they moved to Syracuse as part of something called the Great Migration. I had no idea this existed. Sammy, did you know about the Great Migration? No. What is yeah. the Great Migration? I had no idea until I started researching this. The Great Migration, also known as the Great Northward Migration, or the Black Migration, took place from 1916 to 1970. And it was the movement of 6 million African American people out of the southern U.S. to the Northeast, Midwest, and West. So essentially, it was wow. a bunch of, I know, and it was triggered by poor economic conditions and prevalent racial segregation and discrimination. Hmm. I had yes. no idea. I didn't either. As I was doing this, I was curious about this. I think it's a good thing to know. I'm pretty sure everybody in school, especially if you grew up in the U.S., learns about the Jim Crow laws. And so Jim Crow laws were still active during the majority of this time period. According to History.com, a direct quote, Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. They intended to marginalize African-Americans by denying them the right to vote and get an education among a myriad of other things. The origins of Jim Crow began as early as 1865. Slavery was abolished and they almost immediately started the Jim Crow laws. And they were not actually abolished until 1964, which means they existed for 99 years. That's crazy. Yes. That wasn't that long ago, really. No, no, that's the other thing. 1964, people... A lot of people still alive today were alive during 1964, which just, I think, blows my mind. 
They were abolished in 1964 when President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which legally ended the segregation of Jim Crow laws. As kind of a side note, this did not end all its discrimination. Obviously, a bunch of other laws were actually passed after this, like equal voting, things like that. But the official Jim Crow laws were abolished in 1964. I was just curious when I heard the years of the Great Migration when Jim Crow laws officially ended. It was a major portion of that period of the Great Migration. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was useful information. But backing up, Jeanette Epps. So Jeanette earned her BS in aerospace engineering from Lemoyne College, which is also in the upstate New York area. And she got her master's of science and PhD, also in aerospace engineering, from the University of Maryland. After earning her PhD, she did research for Ford Motor Company before becoming a technical intelligence officer with the CIA, which I thought was really cool. (laughs) Wow. What does a technical intelligence officer even do? (laughs) I was curious about that too. So according to the CIA website, what is a technical intelligence officer? In order to apply, you'll need the technical and people skills to keep technical projects up and running in a dynamic work environment. I don't really know what that means, but sounds fancy. Okay. That's pretty neat. Either way, she actually went on to work for the CIA for seven years and was deployed to Iraq during this time, which is just adds on to the amount of impressive. Seriously. In June 2009, she was one of nine people selected as an astronaut candidate out of 3,500 applicants. She was one of three women and the only African-American in the 2009 astronaut class, which is, first of all, A, three out of the nine were women. So 33% are women, and then only one out of those nine people was African-American, which is just really a bummer. Yeah, 2009. Yeah, that's the thing. It was 2009. It was not 1970, (laughs) (laughs) which still wouldn't have been okay, but 2009 is so recent to right now. After completing two years of astronaut training in Houston, she officially qualified as an astronaut, and then she went on to be an aquanaut as a crew member of NEMO 18. And so I had actually never heard the term Aquanaut. This has a much more in-depth definition, but it just, I don't know, it just makes you think of Aquaman. But it's essentially anyone who is underwater for around 24 continuous hours without returning to the surface. Wow, that's a cool job. That is. Sammy's a diver. I have never, I snorkeled. (laughs) We went snorkeling and it was very fun, but I've never dived. So I actually don't know how long a regular, how long would you be under the water for a dive? I think the longest I've been down there was just under an hour. And usually the recreational dives are on the order of 30 minutes. That's a really long time to be underwater, 24 yeah. hours. <laughs> so you're technically, they're in this habitat. You're not just in your scuba gear. I mean, I guess you could. It's like the ISS, the International Space Station, but for the ocean. They're in a habitat that's called Aquarius which is the world's Mm. only undersea research station. So they're in a habitat, but that's still, if you compare the normal time people would spend under the water about 30 minutes to an hour, I guess if you're a recreational diver, according to Sammy, being underwater for 24 hours is a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's a cool name, Aquarius. Right. And it's actually in the ocean, right? Or is it in a pool? No, it's in the ocean. So NEMO stands for NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. It's a NASA (laughs) mission... (laughs) I don't know why it's funny to me. I don't, I just think it's because it's like, I don't know. Finding Nemo. (laughs) Yes. So sometimes I have experienced this to make, what do you call this? An acronym. Uh, Thank you. An acronym. You find a good word and you kind of like force it to work. But in this case, I feel like it's natural. 
NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. That seems pretty realistic, right? Not too forced. As we kind of jumped ahead to, it's a NASA mission that sends groups of astronauts, engineers, and scientists to live in Aquarius, which sounds so fancy, which is the world's only undersea research station. It's located 5.4 miles or nine kilometers off Key Largo in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Yes. So to answer your question, it is in the ocean. It is not in a pool. And part of the reason why they do this is because it serves as an analog for space, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. You are in an extreme environment. There's not really an easy way out, confined space. All the resources you have, you have to bring with you. It's a fairly good space analog. The one thing they can't do is that underwater, there's still gravity. Right. Yeah. And the forces are a little bit different. Yeah, they definitely underwater. Are. Yes, exactly. Good well, that's, point. that's fun. That seems like a cool job perk. <laughs> I, I actually would think it would be really fun to do. We could do an entire episode just on Aquarius and Nemo alone. It sounds really fun. It sounds like a really cool thing to be a part of. You can actually look up pictures of Aquarius and it looks really neat. Jeanette's specific mission was Nemo 18. That began on July 21st, 2014 and ended after nine days on July 29th. Missions vary in length, but they have a maximum of three weeks. On January 4th, 2017, NASA announced that Jeanette would serve as a flight engineer on the ISS in mid-2018 for Expeditions 56 and 57. Part of the reason why I chose her is that this would have made her the first African-American space station crew member. She would not have been the first African-American to visit the space station because this confused me. I was like, I'm pretty sure there have been African-Americans who have visited the space station. There have been, but she would have been the first one to actually live there. Okay. However, on January 16th, 2018, NASA announced that she had been replaced by her backup, Serena M. Onion Chancellor, and that she would be considered for assignment to future missions. What does that mean? Yes, exactly. You perfectly lead into my next point. There was a significant (laughs) amount of controversy surrounding this. Yeah, essentially NASA gave no explanation for why she was pulled off the mission. Jeanette herself claims that she was not pulled off for health or family reasons and that her training was successful. So that can be reasons why people are pulled off. If your training is unsuccessful or if you have a health problem, they'll pull you. She claims none of that's true. And I, huh. I am going to believe her. So do we not, know? We don't know. Exactly, Sammy. We don't know. While crew changes are not unusual at NASA, it is entirely possible this one could have been caused by racial discrimination. However, there really is no way to know for certain. Wow. Yeah. That seems really odd. The whole story is really odd. I picked her for a myriad of reasons. First of all, she is from around the area in which I grew up in. This was kind of a big deal. Somebody from our part of New York State, and she's going to be the first African-American to do it. It's going to be a woman. She's so accomplished. And then they just pulled her. And I don't think there has been an African-American crew member on the space station since. There has not been. Is that what you said? Yeah. Wow. Because that was 2018. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy that it was for racial discrimination. There is no way to prove that. I'm not making any claims against anybody, but the whole thing is very suspect. Yeah, that's disappointing. That's a really good adjective. It is disappointing, especially because there has been no African-American space station crew member since then. It's not like they pulled her and then replaced her with somebody else, like the all-woman spacewalk that couldn't happen because of spacesuit sizing. But they were able to fix the solution and make an all-woman spacewalk happen. They still haven't Mm -hmm. done this. Huh. Yeah. That was only two years ago. Yep. January 16, 2018. Yeah, two and a half years ago. It's kind of a bummer. And so I didn't want to end on a bummer. So that's why 
I did hers first. It's an important story that needs to be told. I think she's a fascinating person, but I didn't want to end it on that note. Yeah. I mean, that was a good story to tell. Hopefully, you know, we can do better than this in the future. (laughs) That's the thing. That's kind of how I feel when you're reading it. You're like, we really haven't done better than this? We haven't had an African-American live on the space station? Right. 2020. Right. And I mean, I guess we don't know the story. It's probably more involved than we think it is. But she was probably certainly very qualified. Oh, completely. Completely. If you're interested in more about her, about the articles I looked at, she's really a fascinating person. I have links in my sources. I'll link them in the episode notes. Thank you, Anna, for sharing Jeanette's story. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening. I think she's a little bit lesser known, but I think she has an important story to hear. Yes. On a lighter note, I am wondering, Anna, have you ever been to space camp? You know, I never went to space camp, which I, as an adult, would have really liked to do that. I hear there's adult space camps, though. Oh, well, we should find the adult space camp. Yeah, I think we should. You've been to space camp, right? Yeah, and the part about being an aquanaut reminded me of it. I was a small child. I think I was in sixth grade. We played and splashed around in a swimming pool, and they gave us snorkeling masks, and we had a quote-unquote space mission to build a underwater space station out of PVC pipes. <laughs> that sounds like so much fun. Like, I would do that right so now. Much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, and we got to wear wetsuits. It felt like we were astronauts. <laughs> I, that sounds like so much fun. I did not go to space camp. And we're in space camp now. Space, every day less. is space camp. But <laughs> every day is space camp. On that note, Sammy, I'm so excited to hear who you're going to talk about. Well, thank you, Anna. I think I'm going to not go chronologically, and I am going to talk about Charles Bolden. He is a ridiculously accomplished overachieving person in space. And um, I don't quite know how one person can accomplish so many things. And all, you know, all of these astronauts are this way. (laughs) Yeah, they really are. (laughs) He is a Major General Charles Frank Bolden Jr. He's retired from the U.S. Marine Corps. And he was an astronaut on the space shuttle four times from 1986 to 1994. He was the 12th administrator of NASA. He preceded the current administrator, Jim Bridenstine. He's a recent figure, still alive, still around. Part of the reason why I chose him, I actually got the chance to meet him very briefly back in 2013. At that time, I had no idea just how deep his resume and accomplishments went. So it's been nice to learn about him. Where did you... So in 2013, I was a sophomore in college, and I got picked randomly by NASA Social, which is their social media branch and, and social events branch of NASA. It was a lottery, but we got picked to go to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California and yeah. watch a rocket launch of an Atlas V. That's so cool. (laughs) Right? It's completely random. You know, you submit a little bit of a application, but it's a lottery. And 
NASA puts out all these social events, or they used to all the time. And so that was really cool. We got a tour of the Air Force Base. And then on the day before, we got to have a picture on the launch pad with Charles Bolden. He spoke to us for a little bit. And this is while he was actively the administrator. And the launch, it was called LDCM, Landsat Data Continuity Mission. Once it was successfully deployed, it became Landsat 8, which is a part of an Earth-observing satellite missions. It was really cool to meet him. I don't think I fully appreciated back in 2013 other than, you know, the awesomeness of watching a rocket launch. That's the coolest story. I've known you for years, and I've never heard that story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess sometimes it seems a little bit surreal, probably because I was a sleep-deprived college student, (laughs) and I I had to make this work all in one weekend. Um, (laughs) While also doing all of your homework. (laughs) Yeah, and that was my first rocket launch that I got to see from, I think, six miles away. That's Um, amazing. Your first. I cr- what other one did <laughs> you see? F- I, I've only seen one other one at the, the same launch pad. I think an Atlas V 401 variant rocket also. But yeah, That's I've so only cool. seen two. <laughs> have you seen any launches, Anna? I have not. No, I really want to. Um, we got to go. Have- yes. We got to go and like take a road trip or something. I really want to. Or I was thinking the next time they do a big... Like if they do another dragon launch, we should go to Florida. Hopefully we will reach a point where we can travel freely again and COVID won't be a worry. We should all go to Florida and we should watch it. And then we should go to Disney World. <laughs> that is a great idea. I'm 100% on board. <laughs> I think because we would get to see a rocket and then we could go to Disney World. Yes. One yeah. day. Where is Vandenberg? I know it's in California and I know it's on the coast, but is it far away from LA? It's about a... Three to five hour drive north. It is north of Santa Barbara and it's a beautiful drive along the coast. Like I would just go there again for the drive. The Air Force Base is kind of tucked away in these beautiful hills. It is a military base, so they have to be somewhat secluded. But it's not quite central California. It is south central California, if that's a thing. Anyway. Um, I'm just, I'm not from California. So I'm like, there's the South and then there's the middle and then there's the North. (laughs) But I'm sure it's how everybody feels about New York state where I'm from. I haven't spent much time in New York state at all. We'll have to go there. (laughs) I don't know. I Um, think California is more fun, but it's probably just because I'm not from there. Well, I was just looking it up. It's in Santa Barbara County. But anyway, yeah, it was a great launch. My first launch. I cried watching it. I would cry too. (laughs) Charles Bolden addressed us and, you know, he had a really good speech. Like I said, I knew he was the administrator, but I had no idea about his history, about his story. (laughs) I mean, I don't really know. I just knew he was a NASA administrator, but I don't know any of the details of his life. So I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah. Charles Bolden was born on August 19th, 1946 in Columbia, South Carolina. He has a Bachelor's of Science degree in Electrical Science from the U.S. Naval Academy, where he got that degree in 1968. After that, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, 
There, he completed flight training to become a naval aviator in 1970. Since he became a naval aviator, he flew over 100 combat missions in North and South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia between 1972 and 73. That's really incredible. Just as context for anybody who's listening, if you've ever seen Top Gun, they were naval aviators. <laughs> That's a they good point. They were actually not yes. in the Air Force. Yes. A lot of people, I don't think, realize that the Navy has a flight. They've all seen Top Gun, but they don't realize that the Navy has a very intense flight sector. It's very impressive flying. Yep. You're right. You're exactly right. And if you get into the Naval Academy and go on to pass, you are like one of the best of the best pilots. So already very extremely accomplished by 1973, flying over 100 missions. I know. I was like, you could end there and I would already be incredibly impressed. After that, he went to school for systems management. He got a master's from USC, my alma mater. I didn't know that until now. He went to USC, graduated in 1977. Fight on, all you Trojans out there. The next year in 1978, he was assigned to the Naval Test Pilot School at Patuxent River, Maryland. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. I've never been there. Yeah. (laughs) I read some articles. There are some towns that are not pronounced at all how they're spelled. If you've Mm -hmm. ever been to Worcester, Mass, it looks like Worcester. And I read some article. I don't know if it's true at all, that apparently part of the reason why they used to do this was a long time ago, it would be a way to tell whether or not somebody was local or not. Oh, so they changed the name on purpose. From this one article I read, they would make the pronunciation not phonetic to try to catch people who weren't local. Not catch them, but it would be obvious if nobody could pretend that they lived there. That's really interesting. Right? I thought so too. I think that's how you say that, but I guess we're not local, so we don't know. No. Yeah, I I guess I always thought for names like that, they either had a really strange strange accent or they said the name really fast, like Worcester, like Worcester, Worcester. (laughs) No, they just like left. (laughs) There's some other ones. uh, Like I can't think of any because I'm on the spot. But there's some even like if you get into the Midwest or East Coast, they get they get odd. (laughs) There was one in London. It sounds like kind of like Worcester. It's spelled like Leicester, but you pronounce it like Lester. Yep, we've all seen those. But <laughs> sorry, so, I didn't mean to distract uh, you. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but while he was at Patuxent River, Maryland, at Naval Test Pilot School, he completed training in 1979 and he tested a variety of ground attack aircraft there until he was selected as an astronaut candidate in 1980. And that is when he joined NASA's astronaut office. His astronaut career spanned from 1986 to 1994. Two out of the four missions he commanded and the other two he piloted. These included STS-61-C in 1986, where he piloted Space Shuttle Columbia. He also piloted 
Space Shuttle Discovery on mission STS-31 in 1990. This was the mission that deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. Yay! Um, that's really cool. That's so cool. I have a t-shirt with Hubble on it. Oh, cool. Are you going to tie-dye that t-shirt also? Before we started recording, we're in a video chat. I have recently decided that acid wash is back. That's like reverse tie-dye. You can take color out of a shirt with bleach and water. And so I've now, <laughs> I have acid washed various cotton t-shirts that I own. And yes, I might do that to that Hubble shirt. And they look good. I want you to tie-dye some of my plain t-shirts. I totally will. It's so fun. <laughs> and it's, it's the thing of bleach is a dollar. It's so cheap. Uh, the one thing is you cannot go back. <laughs> Once you have done <laughs> it, true. you have committed. <laughs> that is true. But something I just want to point out is that you mentioned Columbia, and most people think of the Columbia disaster, which is very mm-hmm. true. But Columbia was the vehicle. It was not the mission. Right. Yes. That is a good so, distinction. Columbia is the name of that shuttle. So he piloted the Columbia shuttle, but he was not part of the Columbia mission that ended in tragedy. Just as a clarification. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, it is kind of confusing when when you know Columbia as the accident, but it was involved in so many other missions. He piloted Discovery on STS-31 with the Hubble telescope. And on that same mission, apparently, they set a altitude record of 400 miles above sea level. That's kind of cool. In 1992, he commanded Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-45. We have a water team going today. <laughs> that's, that's true. Aquarius, Aquanaut. Atlantis. <laughs> he commanded Atlantis on STS-45, and then his final mission was on STS-60 in 1994, where he commanded the Space Shuttle Discovery. This was a historic flight. I think all of them are personally, but this was a historic first joint American-Russian shuttle mission. Wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The first time working together as crew members with Russian cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev. I hope I didn't ruin his last name. Um, That sounded good to me. (laughs) So altogether, Charles Bolden has logged over 680 hours in space. Seems like a lot to me. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. What have you spent 680 hours of your life doing? Snacking. That's working. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Agreed. So in addition to being an astronaut, commander, pilot, he has had so many roles and titles at NASA, and they include astronaut office safety officer, Technical Assistant to the Director of Flight Crew Operations, Special Assistant to the Director of the Johnson Space Center, Chief of the Safety Division at Johnson, Lead Astronaut for Vehicle Test and Checkout at Kennedy, and Assistant Deputy Administrator at NASA Headquarters. Wow. Those are not all of his titles. (laughs) (laughs) All right. He's already way more than lapped me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What was interesting is you mentioned the Columbia disaster when he was chief of the safety division at Johnson. He oversaw efforts to return the shuttle to flight safely 
after the 1986 Challenger accident. For those listening, it was Columbia and Challenger that unfortunately had very tragic accidents. Yes. And he was part of the team that led the whole shuttle program back to safety and in flight and going back into space. The Challenger accident was in 1986, and his missions were from 1986 onward, which would make me very nervous to fly again. But I think, you know, all of their work, it just speaks to how confident they were about returning. After his final shuttle flight in 1994, he left NASA to return to active duty with the Marines as the deputy commandant of midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. Wow. Yeah. That was his astronaut career, but his NASA career continued after he was an astronaut, and he was actually the first African-American to head the agency on a permanent basis. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. He headed the agency from 2009 to 2017, and he was appointed by President Obama. Wow. That's a long run. What is that? Eight years? Good for him. One of his quotes in the beginning of his tenure, he said, we are going to turn science fiction into science fact. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It's kind of cool. During his leadership as administrator, he oversaw the safe transition from the space shuttle programs to the full use of the ISS and other aeronautics and space technology development. He was also there during the Curiosity rover landing on Mars. Wow, he was there (laughs) for all the good stuff. Hubble, Curiosity. He, He was. And this is the coolest thing I think about him personally. Listen to this. He was the first human being to have his voice broadcast on the surface of Mars. Wow, that's quite the accolade, right? Right? Apparently, they didn't project his voice with normal speakers. What happened was they transmitted his voice to Curiosity, and then the Curiosity rover beamed it back to Earth. Ha ah, so. cool! <laughs> he oversaw Curiosity, and then he also was there when a spacecraft was launched to Jupiter, and he also helped in the progress towards the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. That will be good when that launches. Also, during his tenure, he contributed to development of cleaner, faster, and quieter airplanes. And as a fun little different role within NASA, he auditioned with professional actors for the role of virtual host for (laughs) NASA's... (laughs) shuttle launch experience attraction at Kennedy Space Center. Oh, I've never done, I've seen that. (laughs) I didn't do it. I don't think he actually got the part though, but uh, he auditioned for it. That was his summary of his NASA career, which he resigned in 2017 and he finished being the administrator. Outside of NASA and the military He was also the CEO of a small business called Jack and Panther LLC. What did they do? (laughs) Would you like to guess? Yeah, I have literally no idea. Jack and Panther. (laughs) It sounds like a children's toy company, 
but I feel like it is not. <laughs> it, that is that would be a cool name for a toy company. Right. The company provided leadership, military, and aerospace consulting, as well oh. as motivational speaking. All right. That's awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a great and, name for a company. Jack and Panther. Jack I and wonder Panther. what the origin story of that is. Yeah. Um, I'm like, it can't be people's last names because I don't think anybody's last name is Panther. <laughs> He's definitely lived a very distinguished life. He has many awards. I won't list all of them here, but his NASA awards include the National Space Trophy, the Nirenberg Prize, and the Carl Sagan Award. And in the military, he was awarded a Distinguished Service Medal, a Superior Service Medal, and two Legion of Merit Awards, among others. Wow. He's still alive, and he has received honorary doctorates of science, engineering, humane letters, and law from about 10 different universities around the world. That's pretty neat. Wow. Good for him. (laughs) I'm just in awe. Uh All of that while being a family man. He is married to Alexis Walker, and they have two children together. And they reside in Houston, Texas. That's so lovely. Quite the accomplished person. Reading about him has been inspiring me, you know, to kick myself in the butt, get going. <laughs> you already do a lot. It's not like you're a slacker team. <laughs> Neither are you. But oh, compared you. to these astronauts. That is uh, true. That is Charles Bolden. That was so interesting. I knew he was a NASA administrator, but I knew not any of that story. Right. All right. So we got two more people coming at you, but are you down to take a little break? Sounds good. Awesome. All right. I'm going to get up and preheat my oven. I don't feel thirsty all day and then all of a sudden when I go online with you my mouth is like dry. (laughs) I understand. I am having a really late dinner because I've started making smoothies again. I was partially inspired by you. I'm so bad at gauging how much smoothie to make. Oh that's the fun. That's the fun of it. What kind of smoothies are you making? Well, I had a bag of fruit that I don't even remember buying. So it must have been my mom bought it, but it's the tropical fruit blend. And I threw in some spinach just to get some iron and some cranberry juice, except I completely misjudged how much frozen fruit to put in there. And so I put way too much mm-hmm. frozen fruit. So then I had to keep adding liquid. At the end of this, I ended up with so much smoothie and it was, I wasn't <laughs> going to drink it all, except it was really good. So I drank all the smoothie and then it was 4.30 and I obviously wasn't hungry because I ate a week's worth of servings of fruit. <laughs> so, <laughs> smoothies like, are great. They're so good. And I was like, but I need to eat something for dinner because I need to get some protein. <laughs> but I've been making the same one for weeks now. Ooh, I really need it? to get more versatile. It's frozen fruit. It's the triple berry blend. I love that one. It's like strawberries, blackberries, and raspberries. I'm yep, a fan. So good. And I put half a banana, almond butter, kale, or something green, and then almond milk. Ooh. And maybe like some lime juice and cinnamon. I got it from the internet. It's really good. (laughs) Wow. I really need to up my smoothie game because yours has like protein and good stuff in it. (laughs) 
Yeah, if I want to replace it as lunch, I'll just put more peanut butter in there. <laughs> That's a smart idea. That's probably way better for you than I what I did. <laughs> wow, I really need to up my game here. What's the does the well, cinnamon good? Yeah, it's just a dash, a tap. Actually, I made a mistake the other day. I had ginger root. I put three too many slices of ginger in there and it completely over it overpowered the entire smoothie ginger is dangerous it can be so good it's like red pepper flakes red pepper flakes are awesome but if you put too many on there you can't taste your food at least i can't yeah (laughs) Ooh, ooh, ginger root well i need to up my smoothie game so i can match sammy and maybe get some protein in my life. On that note, welcome back, everyone. We've got two more people to talk to you about. We're both really excited. Who I'm going to go into is Mae Jemison. It's kind of an obvious choice, but it's an obvious choice because of how incredible a woman she is. So just to start out with a quote, once I got into space, I was feeling very comfortable in the universe. I felt like I had a right to be anywhere in this universe, that I belonged here as much as any speck of stardust and any comet, any planet. That's beautiful. I know. I thought so too. And I think it just really applies to today's political climate. You do belong. You belong everywhere. You're so right. That could be on a a banner or a t-shirt or something. I think it's a great quote. It totally should be. We're just going to start right with her life. May Carol Jemison was born in Decatur, Alabama on October 17, 1956. She was the youngest of three children. Her father, Charlie, was a maintenance supervisor for a charity organization, and her mother, Dorothy, was an elementary school English and math teacher. Her and her family moved to Chicago when she was three in order to have better educational opportunities. And I actually think this would have been part of the Great Migration. Chicago's in the Midwest, right? Yeah, and it's 1950s. Yeah, the Great Migration was 1916 to 1970. So I think this also would have been considered part of the Great Migration. Wow. Yeah. It had a much bigger impact than I think I ever realized. Yeah, I wonder, you know, if all those people at the time, while they were moving, if they, you know, history is always 2020, but I wonder if at the time they referred to it as a big migration or a big moving out, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I was curious about that and I tried to look into it, but I don't know if, if it was just because of the situation so many people moved and in retrospect we have named that the great migration or if everybody knew that they were going to do this yeah that's a good question i had that too but either way our family moved up to chicago and she knew from a young age that she wanted to someday go into space she loved the show star trek in particular she loved lieutenant uhura who was portrayed by african-american actress nichelle nichols who doesn't love uhura she's so good she's so good she's played by oh my god what is her name oh i know who you're talking about in the later ones yeah in the later movies it's a very famous actress what is her name zoe Zoe saldana Saldana. yeah yeah we both got there as a space nerd and a woman i think we all watch that and love lieutenant uhura yep i loved her hair slick ponytail long hair yes what a good look so while i was reading this I didn't actually realize how old the original Star Trek series was. It aired from 1966 to 1969. Mm. For some reason, I didn't think it was that old. I knew it was a really big deal that they had a lead character who was a woman. She was an engineer. That's a really big deal. It's a really big deal, that and alone. And the fact that she was African-American was also a big deal. Yeah, that is old. Yeah, it's an old show, and it's had an incredible legacy. 
May was a Trekkie. She was, which I love that. I don't know. I think all of us space nerds are Trekkies at heart, but she was a true original Trekkie. Her parents encouraged her curiosity and love of science. However, she did not get that same support from her teachers. When she told her kindergarten teacher she wanted to be a scientist, the teacher assumed she wanted to be a nurse. And when I first read that, I was like, oh my God, that's so awful. What prejudice and discrimination going on in society? But the thing is, if you look at the year, if she started kindergarten at the age of five, then it must have been the year 1961 or 1960. So we'll say between 1960 and 1962. And just hearing anecdotes from family and friends who were alive in that time, the only real career opportunities for women at this time were to be a nurse or a teacher. Right. There wasn't a lot else aside from that. I think it just shows that as a society, in some ways we have really progressed. The sheer fact that in 1960, the idea of a woman being a scientist was almost unfathomable. In some ways, we have very much progressed, but we still have room to go. Yeah, it's interesting. We've come a long way, but also so far to go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. During her time in high school, she decided she wanted to be a biomedical engineer. I had some questions about this because this must have been a really new field. Biomedical engineering is still fairly new now. A lot of universities don't even offer it especially when you compare it to electrical and mechanical engineering, which are very old. I have some questions about this because other sources said she was interested in chemical engineering. I don't know. But either way, she graduated high school in 1973 at the age of 16. I put that in bold in my notes. She must have graduated a year early or skipped a grade. But at the age of 16, she started at Stanford University. Wow. Which is impressive because she was in Chicago. Stanford's in California. So at 16 years old, as an African-American woman, she moved from her home in Chicago to go to Stanford, which is just blows my mind. When I saw the year, it actually made me think about something as, again, a side note, which is my favorite thing to do. During 1970, 60 female employees of Newsweek, which if you don't know, is an American weekly news magazine. It still exists. They are represented by a woman named Eleanor Holmes Norton, filed a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that Newsweek only allowed men to be reporters, and they won, which is an incredibly big deal. There's a TV show and a book about this called The Good Girls Revolt by Lynn Povich, and there's a TV show on Amazon Prime. The point is, in the year 1970, women were not allowed to be reporters at Newsweek. They had to sue to be reporters. Wow. Yes. May Jemison going to college to pursue a degree in a science field in 1973 is a really big deal. Yeah, that's a really good comparison as context. If women can't be a news person in the 70s to become a scientist. Yeah. And I'm just assuming that most of these women were Caucasian. I do not know that for a fact. Whoever, just judging by the racial discrimination that existed during that time period. Women could not be reporters, let alone as an African-American woman going to be a scientist. It's really impressive. She must have been really brave and resilient. All right, we're getting back on track. While she was at Stanford, she experienced discrimination from her peers and teachers, and there were very few other African-American students in her classes. However, nevertheless, she persisted. What a great phrase. And she served as the head of the Black Students' Union and was involved in numerous dance and theater productions. I didn't know this, but she actually heavily considered pursuing a career as a professional dancer. Oh, wow. She's very versatile, going from scientist to biomedical engineer to dancer yeah i know apparently she got her bachelor's degree and then had a really difficult time deciding about whether or not she was going to pursue an md or if she was going to pursue a career as a professional dancer which are both individually very impressive career paths let alone to have both of them as options to pick from 
<laughs> right. In 1977, she graduated from Stanford with a BS in chemical engineering and a BA in African-American studies. And then to spoil it, you probably could have guessed, she then went on to attend Cornell Medical School. While pursuing her MD, she traveled to Cuba and conducted a study in Thailand working with Cambodian refugees. Wow. I know. It's really incredible stuff. She graduated in 1981 and began interning at the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. Fight on! (laughs) It all comes back to USC. She then went on to work as a general practitioner for Roslas Medical Group. And from there, she went on to join the Peace Corps in 1983 and served as a medical officer until 1985. She served in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Already incredibly accomplished. As has been true for everyone we've spoken about, it does not in there. Upon returning to the U.S. and being inspired by the flights of Sally Ride, who was the first U.S. woman in space, and Guillaume Bluford, who was the first African-American to go to space, both of which happened in 1983, she applied to the astronaut program. In 1987, she was one of 15 candidates chosen out of a pool of 2,000 to be part of Astronaut Group 12. And this was the first group following the Challenger disaster. Wow. Um, yeah. The first I, group after the disaster. So I think it links well to what you mentioned earlier with Charles Bolden. The amount of bravery and trust and just passion for space to be able to see something like that happen and be like, I'm going to do this anyway. I trust in science. I trust in my peers. I want to see the universe. That would be a very daunting yes. task. I, I can't even imagine. Sorry, my oven's beeping. <laughs> On September 28, 1989, she was selected as part of the STS-47 crew. She was mission specialist four and also designated science mission specialist. This was a new role being tested by NASA. The intention was to focus on scientific experiments. However, I don't think this stuck around. I'm pretty sure science mission specialist is not a title at this moment. Mission specialist is still around, but specifically science mission specialist. Hmm. So, I mean, have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think it's still there, but again, it could be. On September 12, 1992, Space Shuttle Endeavour took off from KSC, so Kennedy Space Center, beginning Jemison's one and only trip to space. She was in space for a total of 190 hours, 30 minutes and 23 seconds, making 127 orbits around the Earth. And she began communications on her ship every morning with hailing frequencies open, which is a reference to Star Trek. As Sammy said at best, she was definitely a Trekkie. That's great. <laughs> I thought it was really fun. I liked that a lot. STS-47 was a joint mission between the U.S. and Japan. It carried 43 Japanese and U.S. life science and materials processing experiments. During the mission, Jemison tested NASA's fluid therapy system. This is really neat. I would highly recommend you Google this if you're interested in it. And then she co-investigated two bone cell experiments and participated in an experiment to see how tadpoles developed in zero gravity. Wow. I know. So what exactly is fluid therapy? Because I could consider fluid therapy to be like a nice swim or, you know, like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. (laughs) That is definitely my favorite form of fluid therapy. But unfortunately, I don't think theirs was quite as fun. It also kind of sounds like it could be water aerobics. Yeah, that too. It was none of those things. It was a set of procedures and equipment to produce water for injection. Hmm. So essentially, they used IV bags and a mixing method developed by Baxter Healthcare to use water from a previous step that produced saline solution in space. And I actually think they used the IVs on themselves. Interesting. Yes. Was it supposed to be, what's the word, 
assisted by gravity or, or lack of gravity or something like that? I don't know. I didn't actually dig into how an IV would work in space, but that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that because the reason an IV works, the reason it's up on a pole is because the liquid goes down. Yeah, I didn't think about it either. After returning to Earth, she resigned from NASA with the reasoning that she wanted to start her own company. And a fun little fact is that NASA training manager who trained Jemison, Homer Hickam, later expressed regret that she left. And if Homer Hickam sounds familiar to you, Sammy, do you know what that is? You have to. Oh, yes. October Sky. Obviously. It's the Rocket Boys, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> That's awesome. He became a uh, He became an astronaut trainer. Yep, exactly. And so he trained Jemison. Jemison has accomplished so much after returning to Earth. I, we do not have time to go into it all here. If you are interested, please look into it. She's written many books, including Finding Where the Wind Goes, which is a memoir of her life written for children, which I think is really sweet. I have not personally read it. I want to, but it's got incredible reviews. She then went on to start a consulting firm called the Jemison Group, Inc., which considers the socioculture impact of technological advancements in design. Sociocultural impact. The first thing I think of is AI. I don't know if that's what they look into, but the first thing I think of is artificial intelligence and whether or not artificial intelligence is a good idea Mm -hmm. because of the impacts it could have on society. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's kind of happening right now. There's different cities that are accepting robots in their supermarkets and mail delivery. That's what that makes me think of. It's a perfect example. In so many ways, technology is amazing. However, it can also be easy, especially as people who work in a science field, to get so wrapped up in the technology to not necessarily think about what impacts it could have on society. If you think about it, just the invention of the smartphone has completely changed society. Yeah. And I love my smartphone, but it definitely had a cultural impact. Interesting. I had never really thought about just the fact that that would be a consulting firm, but it makes sense. Hmm. Some good thought experiments there. She also founded the Dorothy Jemison Foundation for Excellence. She named it after her mother, which I thought was really lovely. And among many other things the foundation does is that they put on a science camp called The Earth We Share for students ages 12 to 16. And then to bring it... I know! I thought that was nice. It made me think when you said earlier about how you went to space camp. (laughs) To bring it all full circle, in 1993, Mm -hmm. Jemison appeared as Lieutenant Palmer in Second Chances, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, making her the first real-life astronaut to be on the show. Oh, wow. Right. I thought that was so fun. <laughs> I want to go watch that episode now. I do, too. I, I read this last night, and it was too late for me to start watching it, but I want to go see it. Yeah. I, the Next Generation is my favorite series of the Star Treks, I think. I've watched a few episodes of Next Generation, but I definitely have the time to watch the whole thing, so I should do that. <laughs> We'll be full-on Trekkies by the time we will. quarantine is over. There are worse things, I think. Well, but- that's really fun. She got to, she started with Star Trek and then kind of ended with Star Trek. Yeah, I thought that was just like Star Trek is what inspired her. And then she actually went to space and then got to be on Star Trek. Yeah, that's really cool. Just made me smile. And then a final, I threw in a second quote from her just because I saw this. Some of the most fun people I know are scientists. And I read that and I was like, I agree. We're fun. (laughs) We are fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's cool. Again. Yeah, she had a really amazing life. She's still alive. That was such a good story. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for listening. I'm so excited to hear what you've got going. You're going to do Catherine. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> well, I don't think you would be spoiling too much. Hopefully, some of our listeners have seen the recent 2017 blockbuster movie, Hidden Figures. Yeah, so good. So good. Oh, actually, it's 2016. (laughs) Well, hopefully some of our listeners have seen the 2016 blockbuster (laughs) movie, Hidden Figures. And I know you've seen it. Oh, yeah. I've definitely seen it. (laughs) I remember I went to see it in the movie theater with my parents. And I really wanted to see it. But it was one of those movies that I sat down. And before I knew it, the movie was over. Like it went, I wanted it to keep going. Yes, it was just so good that I was so captivated the whole time. It was really well made. If you haven't seen it, we highly recommend it. It is based on the book by Margot Lee Shetterly, Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. From this book and from this story I chose Katherine Johnson to talk about. She was a research mathematician at NACA and NASA back in the early human spaceflight days. She played a very historical role as one of the first African-American women to work as a NASA scientist. So that goes into what you were saying Anna, about Mae Jemison wanting to be a scientist back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, it just wasn't. They were very few and far between. It just wasn't the standard for women. Katherine Johnson was most known for doing the orbital mechanics mathematical work behind the early human space flights and specifically famously being called out by astronaut John Glenn who was the first American to orbit in a satellite. He specifically called her out to check the trajectory math before his flight, and he trusted her math, and he wanted to hear her call it off safe. That's a really fun, heartwarming story. And before John Glenn's flight, she calculated the trajectory of Alan Shepard's 1961 trip into space. So that was suborbital. Her work included calculating trajectories, launch windows, emergency return paths, and lunar rendezvous paths. Her efforts were essential to the beginnings of the space shuttle program. She was an amazing woman, and we'll talk about this, but at the time, all the math uh, was done manually by hand or with primitive machines. So yeah, a slide rule is not just a relic. People use them. Mm-hmm. Skipping around a little bit, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama in 2015, and that is America's highest civilian honor. As mentioned, she and other Black women mathematicians were brought into the public forefront in the movie in 2016 in Hidden Figures. She was played by Taraji P. Henson, I think. Yeah, you got it. You know, it's unfortunate that it came out relatively late, 
but it really came out with a huge bang. It was very inspiring to a lot of people. I remember seeing that movie and I had heard of Katherine Johnson, but I didn't really know that much about them. And that movie really opened my eyes to their lives and truly the accomplishments that they had made. And I wish I had known to look into that earlier, but I'm happy I learned about them. Yeah, same. Better late than never. Katherine Johnson was born, actually, Creola Katherine Coleman on August 26 in 1918 in the West Virginia town of White Sulphur Springs, That's which insane. coincidentally... <laughs> That's yeah, before Prohibition, right? right? The That's prohibition. before... <laughs> yeah, like... Right. Um, and August 26, coincidentally, is Women's Equality Day. Very fitting. Her parents were Joylette Roberta and Joshua McKinley Coleman. She was the youngest of four children. Her mom was a teacher, and her father was a lumberman, farmer, and handyman. Katherine Johnson has a Bachelor of Science in both mathematics and French, and she graduated from West Virginia State College in 1937. And her education was very interesting. Like you said, right around Prohibition time in the 30s, 1930s, at that time in the town she was living in, African-Americans education stopped at eighth grade. The public schools stopped at eighth grade when, when you're 14 years old. It goes back to those Jim Crow laws. Yep, exactly. Her father moved all of them out to Institute West Virginia for them to be educated through high school. She skipped grades, and she graduated high school at 14 years old. (laughs) (laughs) That's when I started high school. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And then so she graduated high school at 14, and then she started at West Virginia State College at 14. She took every math class they had. Her advisors even had new math courses added for her specifically. That's amazing. Um, Right? She graduated college at 18. (laughs) Again, that's when I started college. (laughs) Yep. I don't know what the right word is for this, but she was picked to be one of the three black students, the first black students to integrate West Virginia's graduate schools. Oh, my God. So she was the only woman of the three black students that went to West Virginia University for graduate school. So that's pretty amazing. During grad school, she heard about an opportunity at Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, which is now the Langley Research Center by NASA um, in Hampton, (laughs) Virginia. I know it's that old, but it still blows my mind to hear about how old it is. Right. 40s and the 50s. Yeah. Langley was specifically looking for black women computers in 1952 for the tedious and precise work of data crunching wind tunnel tests from back in 1935. The terms computers and calculators didn't refer to inanimate objects and electronic devices. They were roles for people where they do manual math. And yes. that's what they were looking for. When I learned that computers and calculators were named after physical people who used to do that job, that still yeah. blows my mind. It does. It's amazing. When you do think about it, I guess it does make sense because what are they doing is they're calculating, they're computing, 
They yes. are the computers. <laughs> they, yes, it does make sense. And wind tunnel testing is such a large endeavor in terms of experimental setup, executing the experiments, and then gathering all the data. There's so much data to sift through. And at that time, it was all done manually with people. And so they were hiring Black women to do this work. They already had white women as computers. They were segregated at that time in the facilities. There were facilities and an office for the black computers and facilities for the white computers, and they couldn't share bathrooms and stuff like that. It was an intense time doing an intense job. <laughs> yeah, it's all, yeah. <laughs> that was 1952. Five years later, she was picked to join engineers in what was called the Space Task Force. Fancy. This was in... Yeah, <laughs> I want to be on a space task force. Me too. This was in 1958. This was before NASA was NASA. It was called NACA, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. I always um, forget about that period. Right? That was the same year that NACA became NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. She joined the space task force. She worked through 1962 during John Glenn's Friendship 7 orbital mission, which was to be the first American orbital mission. What happened in, in the 1960s was there was the development of these new electronic computers to do all of these mathematical calculations. On the day of the launch, he asked for the engineers to, quote unquote, get the girl. He was referring to Katherine Johnson he wanted her to check the computer's work by hand. She remembers him saying, if she says they're good, then I'm ready to go. Oh, that's just such a wonderful thing. John Glenn is actually a really nice guy. If you look at his life story, it's really lovely. I think it just shows because of discrimination, so many brilliant minds were not given the opportunities they should have had. And I think it's just an amazing thing in that moment for John Glenn to be like, I genuinely don't care. You're smart. And I trust you with my life. Yeah. And I mean, I would feel so proud and accomplished just to hear anybody yes. say that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. John Glenn went on to have a successful flight of the orbital mission. Katherine Johnson went on to say that the greatest contribution to space exploration for her were her calculations that helped sync Project Apollo's lunar module with the Lunar Orbiting Command and Service module. Was that so, the first rendezvous? I think it was the first. I mean, she was there for suborbital flights, the first orbital flights, and lunar missions. She was involved in all of it. That's amazing. Just the we talked about this actually. We talked Sammy and I talked about this when we talked about the ISS and Crew Dragon. We do that math with computers. Yep. And we've done it before. We have rendezvoused with the ISS. The sheer fact that they did that with their brains and an IBM the size of an auditorium is yeah. just insane. Yeah. And we learn it, you know, in college or on the job with advanced tools that allow us to do it in a few seconds. Yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> it just, it blows my mind that we figured that out. Like as a, as a people <laughs> that we have figured that out. Like, 
Yeah. And apparently, you know, she, she really, really enjoyed it. She said that she was always counting things growing up. She was counting the stairs. She was counting the cereal that she was eating. Anything that could be counting, she was counting. And when she was at work, one of her favorite things to do was trajectory analysis. And she would say something like, just tell me where and, and when you want to splash down and I'll back it out from there. I'll do the math. That's so amazing. <laughs> She went on to co-author 26 research reports, and she also worked on the Space Shuttle and the Earth Resources Technology Satellite, which would go mm. on to become Landsat, <laughs> um, <laughs> which consists of several satellites. They are Earth observing, and they give us a ton of data about our weather and our climate. Kind of touching back on the role of being a computer and a calculator, like we said, they were doing very complex calculations manually, and she has said that they were writing their own textbook because there was no other text about space at that time. She said, regarding Alan Shepard's suborbital flight, the early trajectory was a parabola, and it was easy to predict where it would be at any point. Johnson says, early on, when they said they wanted the capsule to come down at a certain place, they were trying to compute when it should start. I said, let me do it. You tell me when mm -hmm. you want it and where you want it to land, and I'll do it backwards and tell you when to take off. That was my forte. <laughs> That's amazing. And then when electronic computers came around, she helped pioneer the use of them for the same math tasks which I can't even imagine being presented with this new technology that can do my job for me at a fraction of the time. She essentially went on to become a computer programmer. That's insane. She was born before Prohibition <laughs> and went on to become a computer programmer. Yep. All in all, her NACA NASA career spanned 33 years from 1953 to 1986. She has honorary doctorates and has won Lunar Team Awards in Navigation Problems and a Silver Snoopy Award, <laughs> <laughs> which I learned is an award given to someone who's been outstanding in human flight safety so she, oh, wow. she worked in mission safety and mission assurance. Really incredible. After her formal career, she was still involved in math. She tutored young students and promoted STEM. In 2019, NASA dedicated a facility in her name, the oh. Katherine Johnson Independent Verification and Validation Facility in Fairmont, West Virginia. It sounds like the perfect facility for her. Yeah. It's a 25-year-old program. It provides computational software and mission assurance support for current NASA missions, including the Commercial Crew Program, which you and I have just talked about in the last episode. We did. Wow. It all, it's all just one big pile of space. <laughs> And also in 2019, she was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Amazing. Very esteemed lady. She was a mother and a wife. Her first husband was James Goebel, 
They had three daughters together, Constance, Joylet, and Catherine. James died of a brain tumor tragically in 1956. She later remarried James A. Jim Johnson in 1959, and they were married for 60 years Aww. until death. <laughs> That's lovely. And I don't think I mentioned that she lived to be 101 years old, and she died this year, February 24th of 2020, uh, as if 2020 wasn't bad enough I, I already. Know, I know, but she lived a long <laughs> life. Not that it's not she a did. loss by any means. <laughs> she lived she a did. long life. Wow. What yeah. an incredible life story. What a great one to end on. Yeah. She's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You all Those... should go watch Hidden Figures. You should read the book too. It's also great. And they go, there are so many other women in that book and in that movie. Again, like we said at the beginning of this episode, there are so many amazing African-Americans who have had impacts on space and have contributed to space in so many different ways. We have just picked the tiniest little grain of sand to share with all of you. Yes. Yes. And hopefully we can pile on that sand so many times over with great talents of all of the cultures and backgrounds. Yes. I think that's lovely. It was so awesome to have you here, Sammy. Thanks for doing this. It was really fun to be here, Anna. I learned so much tonight. I did too. I know. I actually love researching these. I just think there's so much out there I don't know. Yeah. Just keeps things interesting, right? We need some good interesting right now. Yes. Yes, we do. As per usual, you can find us on Instagram at But It Is Rocket Science. You can find us on Twitter at But It Is RS. You can find our Facebook page, But It Is Rocket Science. And then we have our website, But It Is Rocket Science.com. If you enjoyed this, please check out our website. If you want to learn more about us, check out our website. And then you can actually contact us. So if there's anything you want to let us know, if we've said anything wrong, if there's anything you'd like to learn, if you just want to tell us you like the podcast, please send us a message on our Contact Us page. And then if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast. It would mean a lot to us. All right. So on that note, are you ready to close it out with me? I think so. All right. Until next time, Space Cadets. T minus three, two, one, liftoff. Perfect. But <laughs> I'm just going to stop recording. Stop recording.